okay? You seem a little off. Yeah, I'm just trying to think about what I want. Yeah, me too. Why don't you say it at the same time? One, two, three. I want a divorce. Mm -hmm. You're not talking, and you know that only makes me talk more, you know? But I mean, but maybe that's good, you know? Because maybe I'll just say it. Maybe, maybe I'll just tell you I slept with someone. David Lindhagen, from work. You met him at the Christmas party, the one Please with stop. The, the last person in the world that I'd want to hurt is you. If you keep cow, talking, but, I'm going to get out of the car. I think the fact that I did it, it just shows how broken we are. Oh, how, how much, how much we really need to help. seems a little upset, which is what adultery does to people, and he realizes my whole life, my marriage is crumbling and falling apart. If you're married, I hope you've never had one of those dinners with your spouse where you order the creme brulee and she orders the divorce at the same time, but that's what happens to Cal and to Emily too. And that doesn't just affect married people, and this sermon isn't just for married people either. This is for single people or any of us who know people who are going through this kind of hurt. This kind of trauma, really, this kind of grief, this kind of sorrow, this kind of suffering, because that's what adultery does. Hello to everybody uh, who's here. Good to see a full house uh, here in West Des Moines again. And hello to everybody who's watching it at all of our campuses. All of our campuses are tuning in live this weekend because apparently none of the campus pastors want to preach on sex. And I get it. I understand. You know, I'm getting older. I've learned a few things along the way. Uh, but a special welcome to all of you. Ankeny, hello. Waukee, Grimes, hello. Uh, Ames, hello. And uh, to Hope Elam, too, especially to you guys. It's your second anniversary next week, so we praise God for that. And to all the local sites, uh, too. We're really glad that you're all here. Thank you. So we're in this series of sermons called The Ten Commandments in Nine Weeks, and we're up to that commandment, which I don't think I need you to, I, I don't think I need to persuade you because even people who aren't religious would say, yeah, I agree with that. You shouldn't commit adultery, it's hurtful. There aren't a whole lot of people walking around who would argue a pro-adultery stance. Like, it's really good for everybody involved. Nobody gets hurt, it's awesome. Uh, go, go down that road. Although there are certainly some who would, and there are temptations. There's exceptions to every rule. But the overwhelming majority would agree with God on this. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time trying to convince you that adultery is bad, but I do want to point out to you some things that, well, that stand out. And, and the reason the hurt is so deep in that movie scene, uh, opening scene from Crazy Stupid Love, how deep the hurt goes. The big problem with adultery is it breaks trust. It just burns right through the chain of trust that a married couple have. And when that chain gets broken, there's some work to be done. There's some sadness. There's, there's some sorrow to walk through. But there's more problems with adultery. Number one on that more list is fantasy is not reality. I searched for the cheesiest comic strip picture of an adulterous affair that I could find. But this isn't real. His scarf is wrong too, but the whole thing, <laughs> it, it's just, it just it, you can tell what kind of a person he is just by what he's wearing, right? 
oh gosh, I hope nobody, no men are wearing scarves out there right now. But the, the, the problem is fantasy is not reality. An adulterous affair looks all the more tempting than it really is because it's just, it's not real. It's, it's romance. It's, it, it's courting. It's, it, it's running off and doing whatever you want. It's, it, it's having these, 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 these mountaintop experiences together. It isn't reality. Reality is deciding who's going to unload the dishwasher today. Who's going to drive the kids to their next activity? Who's, who's going to take the garbage out? Who's going to, how are we going to pay the bills? Going through the stresses, going, going through the, the burdens, going through the ups and downs, going through the mundane, which is why in over 90% plus of cases of relationships that start as adulterous affairs, they fizzle out or they crash and they explode because as they move from, you can't be in fantasy land forever. As they move from fantasy to reality, they completely, well, they lose their, they, they lose this, whatever this was. They lose the fantasy. Number two, on the more problems list is way more than a few people get hurt. It's not just the person who got cheated on. It's everybody involved, and this movie does a good job of depicting that. It's the son, it's the daughter, it's the neighbors, it's, it's the other woman that Cal has a rebound revenge affair with. Everybody gets hurt, and the ripple effect goes out further and further, and it starts to affect uh, extended families and relatives and neighbors and, and communities and churches. I'm not preaching this sermon about people outside of the church today alone, exclusively. This is about people inside the church, too, inside our own church family. Because this affects all of us on one level or another. The third problem on this list with adultery is we miss out on the upside of faithfulness. When the bride and groom say, I do, once upon a time, the commitment's high, the smiles are easy, everyone's celebrating, there's lots of joy, as there should be. But I'm telling you, there's even more joy down the road for people who do marriage God's way. For people who stay committed to it. When one month becomes one year, and one year becomes two, and two becomes five, and five becomes ten, and on and on it goes, my wife and I will be celebrating our 35th wedding anniversary in a couple of months, and I praise God for her and for that. Yeah. That's awesome. But we do not have a perfect marriage. Neither do you. And it's not a competition. And the point of this sermon is not be like Sally and Mike and, and, and do it like we do. You got your own thing, you've got your own relationships, you've got your own ups and downs, struggles and challenges. There's no such thing as a perfect marriage. Sally's in a perfect marriage. I'm not, actually, it'd be the other way around. It would be, it would be me is pretty close to being in a perfect marriage. But there is no such thing, and we know that. We have to work just as hard as any other couple. Because people change over time. Seasons of life change. And so you need to change. You need to keep checking in with each other. You need to, to, to fall in love with each other in new ways. But when you do, man, it's a beautiful thing. I still remember in fifth grade, my grandparents, my mom's parents would come visit us, you know, for Christmas and holidays and stuff. And one day I'm sitting there, we're watching The Love Boat. If you don't know what that is, you really missed out. Uh, so we're watching the love boat, and I'm, I'm looking over, and there's Grandpa making a move on Grandma by holding her hand and then rubbing her knee. I'm like, oh, gross. Oh, my gosh, there's nothing worse for a fifth-grade boy than to have to see Grandma, Grandpa, 90-something-year-old Grandpa, flirting with his wife of 60-plus years. But now I look back on it fondly. It's a beautiful thing. Your, do you know your love could actually grow? 
That you could be stronger and more bonded when you're in this picture than when you're in that picture? It's an uphill climb. It's not easy. There's a lot of sacrifice, forgiveness, grace, hard work. But the view. Man, when you do it God's way. Woman, when you do it God's way. It's a beautiful thing. So what is the rest of the upside of faithfulness? There's a deeper bond, the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapters, this bond that connects us together. There's fewer divorces. Jesus mentions that in his Sermon on the Mount, and that's why he speaks so strongly against adultery. There's better sex. I'm Scandinavian. I'm not going to spend any more time on that, (laughs) except to tell you that the science and the research backs me up on that. The people in this world who are having the best sex are the people who are married, and they're having it with each other not with other people. That's the best that it could possibly get because you have the commitment. You have the years. You have the, we go through the mundane, not just the fantasy land stuff. There's a, I gotta move on. There's a higher view of God's love. You start to realize what the Bible says, that, that the relationship between Christ and his church, Christ is the groom, the Bible says, the church is the bride, is this faith that we're supposed to have. So marriage becomes an example of this greatest relationship that we have with God. We get a higher view of how powerful God's love is. We know that it endures forever. So the Bible would sum up marriage in this way, in multiple different places. This is just tip of the iceberg passages that you can reference and look up if you want. Marriage is a holy covenant. It's holy, it's set apart by God. It isn't just a couple of people who fell in love and decide to you know, tie the knot. It's a holy covenant between husband and wife established by God who's the inventor of sex. And I put the inventor of sex in parentheses because that's where the Bible goes. Because it's important. And so I don't know how I can say it more bluntly or simply or put it more black and white than this. You must not commit adultery. This is the commandment. Because there's too much writing on it. There's too much upside you miss out when you do. There's too much downside that you fall into and drag a whole bunch of other people into. When you break those vows, when you step out of your marriage, you must not commit adultery. So this is the point where a lot of people who have a um, self-righteous religious spirit say, amen, this is one of the best sermons I've heard in a long time. We're just putting it right out there. Jesus is going to mess you up on the next screen. Because he takes this commandment and he says, yeah, but it's you too. You have heard it said, Jesus says, the verse right before this, you shall not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I don't think it's taking liberties with the text to say that it could be a woman looking at a man or anybody looking at anybody with lust. You've committed adultery with that other person in your heart. Now the ground levels before the foot of the cross again, doesn't it? That's the thing about God's commandments. They grab us all. They challenge us all. They become a mirror in front of us all. There's way too much in the American church today of this religious spirit where we say, we've got it right, and people who commit adultery, they don't really belong with us. They don't belong in our holy huddle. They don't belong in our church. They shouldn't be sitting in the pew next to me or the row next to me or the chair next to me. No, we're going to have communion at the end of this sermon. Rightly so. Because we all need to get in line. Jesus makes that very clear. You don't just sin by your actions. You don't just sin by your words. Sure, the consequences on this, in this world can be greater if you actually sin physically and commit adultery more than an emotional affair. But still, even your thoughts can be sinful, Bible. Jesus says clearly in the Bible here. 
Anyone who even looks at a woman who has this lustful thought. Jesus also encounters adultery later in John chapter 8 when the religious self-righteous people uh, drag a woman who's been caught in the sin of adultery to him because they're trying to trick him and test him because they have this narrow interpretation of their law that says you can stone to death a woman who commits adultery or a person who commits adultery. Never mind they didn't drag the man in. I'm pretty sure she didn't commit adultery with herself. But that's the misogynistic world that Jesus lived in and it still exists on certain levels today, that's for sure. So the woman gets blamed and accused and shamed and she's got her life now on the line and the religious establishment of the day, the self-righteous ones, the ones who still to this day in our hearts want to say, yeah, hit them hard with this. When Jesus is clearly saying, I'm talking to you too. This is we. It's not us and them. It's all of us have some work to do on this one. All of us have some confessing to do. All of us are in need of God's amazing grace on this one. Still the religious self-righteous people will say, make sure you get to the last part of the story where you say, go and sin no more. Okay, there's the last part of the story. Go and sin no more. You're right. We should tell this part of the story. It's important. Why did Jesus tell the woman to go and sin no more? Because he loved her. And he knew that if she continued a pattern of adultery that she wouldn't be living a full and abundant life. She'd be hurting herself in some serious ways. And she'd be hurting other people. She'd be hurting families. She'd be hurting communities. And he wanted better for her. So go and sin no more. Please note, he said this to her privately after the religious self-righteous people had left. He didn't preach this in a, in a name-the-name way. He didn't shame this person. He privately went to this person and said, stop it. Don't do this anymore. Do you follow Jesus? Well, here's his example. What did he do publicly? He dismissed the self-righteous religious accusers. He says, if any of you have never sinned, go ahead and throw the first stone at her. And he knew he had them, and they knew he had them, and they had to drop their stones and walk away. Which begs the question, who set your moral compass? The religious self-righteous world that's out there or the religious world that says anything goes adultery's fine as long as there's consenting adults who cares anymore there's really no boundaries or is there a more faithful middle is there a, a clear call from God on these things that would lead us all to, to not just better marriages and relationships but, but better communities better neighborhoods better cities better nations because the family would be uplifted who sets your moral compass who gets to be true north for you who gets to tell you which way you go when you face the daily dilemmas the moral dilemmas the ethical things the the stuff where you're not sure what you should do who do you turn to who becomes the source for you on the decisions you're going to make social opinion whatever twitter is saying although that's rapidly changing did you get your check yet uh your check mark apparently those are going to be sold now uh, honestly do we care that much? Do we really need the check that much? I, I don't know. Is it a political worldview? Are you watching cable TV news or, 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 or scanning it on your phone over and over and, and say this is the biggest issue in the world today? That's important. As I said last week, we're going to vote here as a nation in a couple of days. I encourage you to do it. I encourage you Christians to participate. Let your voice be heard. But you're going to let politicians set your moral compass? 
That's as deep as you go? Another human being? A flawed, fallible human being is going to tell you what's right and wrong as your absolute true north truth? Or is it your own personal philosophy? I just believe in myself. Or, or somebody else's, a, a trusted family member, a trusted friend. Whatever they say, that's what goes for me too. I invite you to look deeper at your life. Find a better compass. Let number four become number one. It's not that these other three things shouldn't be consulted or they aren't important. It's just that number four should be way on top. The timeless truth of God's word. God's the one who invented marriage. Shouldn't we check with him on it? God's the one who invented the gift of sex. Shouldn't we check with him on it, what he had in mind when he created it instead of just saying, oh, it's a political issue. It's a social hot button issue. It's, a, it's about whatever the trends are, whatever the latest survey says. It's about whatever I think. It's about whatever anybody else thinks. What about the one who created it? What about the one who created you with a plan for your life, for my life? What's your true north? Who gets to set your moral compass? In this movie, Cal and Emily finally get to a point where they're starting to tell the truth. They're not all the way there, especially Cal, not all the way there, but he starts to come clean. And so does Emily. Emily admits and realizes that this fling she had with David, uh, whatever his name was, uh, Lil Hogan or something, played by Kevin Bacon, because there's always just a couple of degrees of separation with Kevin Bacon, apparently. That the fantasy's turning into reality and she's not really interested. That it wasn't what, you know, it wasn't as, it looked better in the brochure than in real life. And so as the affair evolves, she checks out. And she's ready to come clean with that. Cal is also ready to come clean with the fact that he got lazy as a husband. He stopped trying. He stopped putting his wife first in terms of human relationships. He let other things become more important to him. And when that happens, you start to sow the seeds that can lead to an affair. I want to be as clear as I can on this. It never excuses an affair. There's no excuse for an affair. If you have a spouse who isn't meeting your needs, you need to communicate. You need to get counseling. You need to work on it. It doesn't give you a free ticket to go out and do whatever you want and step out of your marriage because that other person is meeting your needs. Work on keeping the vows that you made before God and with one another as husband and wife. So they start to come clean and they're at a parent-teacher conference like a lot of divorced couples. They're on their way toward divorce. They're picking up the shrapnel of, of the mess that this adulterous affair made. They're being very honest about it finally, starting to be. And this isn't just them. It's a lot of us. As I said earlier, it's our church family too. According to the stats, 60% of all spouses will take part in some form of infidelity at least once during their marriage. That's physical affairs, but it also includes emotional affairs, which can be very damaging. It's when you don't sleep with somebody else, but you give your heart to somebody outside of your marriage that only your spouse deserves. You have that bond with a coworker, with a friend, with a neighbor, with a former flame from back in junior high school and you try to rekindle that or, or, or get something new going with somebody new and have that emotional bond. It's damaging. It's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt other people. It's going to hurt your marriage. It's going to hurt your family. 99% of Americans state that they expect their spouse to be faithful. <laughs> so there's a 99% expectation and there's a 40% like follow through. We have a problem. 
We have a problem with faithfulness. We have a problem with keeping this commandment, if we're going to be honest, and it's the truth that sets us free. And that truth starts to come out in a funny way at this parent-teacher conference. And it gets even funnier at the very end. I left this last few seconds in, carefully edited, by the way. Because the junior high teacher for their son, Robbie, turns out to be one of the women that Cal's having a revenge affair with. Much to everyone's surprise. Take a look. So how's it going with David? Oh, you know, it... Um, it wasn't, um, that it didn't mean anything. No. I mean, you know, if, if, No, um, I know. You seeing anybody? Me? Mm -mm. Oh, you know, well, you hear things, you know, so. No, no, not really. You know me. I miss you, Em. I made an effort when we were younger, didn't I? I mean, miniature golf and dancing. You were such a great dancer. I had to be. You're such a good miniature golfer. I just, I don't know. I guess I got lazy. I got, I got boring is what I got. No. And I'm so mad at you. I'm really mad at you for what you did. But I'm mad at myself, too. Because I should not have jumped out of that car. I should have fought for you. Because you fight for your soulmates. I miss you, Mr. and Mrs. Weaver? No way in. The next words out of his mouth were not the world. Uh, he was pointing a little lower than that. So how do we rebuild trust? They're trying. They're starting to before they get the big shocker surprise as the door opens. If this is you, if this is somebody you love, if this is somebody you know, single or married, maybe you know somebody in this place. How do you rebuild trust after adultery? If you're betrayed, you have to go ahead and grieve. I, I would encourage you to go ahead and grieve. I want to take the have-to out of that. But give yourself space to grieve. There's a death here. There's a death of trust, and it needs to be resurrected. Number two, give yourself a break. Again, you may have contributed to it. Cal comes clean on that. He says, I, I got lazy. I, I wasn't putting you first. I, I wasn't giving my all to this marriage. And that'll contribute, certainly, to, to a higher temptation for an affair, but it doesn't excuse it. So give yourself a break. It's not your fault. It's not your fault that this happened. Number three, skip over the revenge option. Skip over the I need to ruin your life option. I need to destroy your future option. I need to have you removed from, from, from everywhere and everything option. The Bible's clear on this. It says vengeance is mine, says the Lord. You as human beings are really bad at it. And the problem is you think you're really good at it. I've walked alongside of a lot of couples over the last 30 plus years as a pastor who are going through this and a lot of times this revenge factor comes up. I want to get him back. I want to get her back. I want to show them who's boss. I want to show them. I want them destroyed. They hurt me so much. I want to hurt them back because then that'll feel better. 
Even if you succeed, you will not feel better. Even if you destroy the other person's reputation, you ruin the other person, you will not feel better. It will not be soul satisfying. God has wired you up so that it just isn't possible. We've got to have grace. We've got to make some space for that. That doesn't mean you bless the sin. That doesn't mean you say it's a-okay, no problem at all. It doesn't mean you have to go back. Because number four is be patient. Be patient. Give, give some room, but if there isn't room, if there's no movement, Jesus makes it really clear. You have grounds for divorce, and you can do it without sin. If you've been cheated upon, this is very clear in his Sermon on the Mount, that's the only grounds for divorce that rises to that level. You go ahead and let that marriage go because it's actually the betrayer who broke the vows, not you. But notice Jesus doesn't say you must divorce. You have to dump this marriage. It has to be over. He's just giving an out, a just out for people who've been hurt and don't want to stay there anymore. But God's also a God of reconciliation and God of new life, a God of resurrection, a God who brings things back from the dead. So just be patient. Maybe give it a little time, a little room. If you say, well, people can't change, do you know how faithless that sounds? I'm here to tell you. I've walked alongside so many couples, many of them I'm preaching to right now, who've been through this mess and have come out the other side stronger. And people change. God is a God of transformation. He can change people's hearts. It doesn't mean it happens every time. And it isn't because God isn't willing. It's because the person who could be receiving that change isn't willing and closes up his or her heart to the transformation that God intends and wills for that person that would actually bless them in enormous ways but they push back on it, they close their hearts, they say, I'm going to go my own way, I'm going to go the world's way, I'm going to go the way that I think is the way that's better for me, I, I don't trust you enough, God, I don't believe in you enough, God, to think that your way should be the way that I go. So we get what we got. If you're the betrayer, end the other relationship. I can't emphasize this one enough. Wipe the name off of your contact list, let the person know I'm not going to call you anymore, text. I'm not going to receive your texts, block them, say, I'm not, it's over, it's done. You owe that to the vows you made to your spouse. End the relationship. You can't be friends anymore. It's over. It's done. Number two, sincerely apologize. Number three, be consistent. Number four, you be patient too. I've, I've seen this happen so many times. When I'm counseling a couple and the one, the husband or the wife or whoever it might be, stands up and says, I've done one, two, and three. I ended the other relationship. It's over. I sincerely apologized. I'm telling the truth now. I'm not cutting corners. I'm not making up stories. I'm not telling lies. I've done all these things. We should be back together again, right? That's not your call. That's not your call. That's the one who's betrayed they get to make that call. Now, the one who's betrayed doesn't get to turn this into a power play if you're going to go God's way. If you're going to go the world's way, they'll tell you, make it a power play. Show them. Make it hurt. But God's way is a way of grace and compassion and forgiveness. Be patient, though. You don't get to tell the other person when they need to get over it, when they need to be okay with it. And finally, together, find a good marriage counselor. Get support. We have a marriage retreat coming up here in our West Des Moines campus for all campuses next week. It's for all couples, married or not, and you're invited to come and learn more about what God's plan is for relationships and for marriages. 
This isn't so much for the people who are struggling and working through an affair. You need professional marriage counseling for that. But this is for the people that I want to close with. And it's the people who want to do everything they can to make their marriage as affair-proof as possible. And to live up to and live out what the Bible says love is supposed to be. Something that endures through every circumstance. That holds on. So how do you minimize the potential for adultery in a marriage? Number one, and most importantly, put God first. Here's my last stat and bar graph. If you can't read it because it's so far away, that's okay. Over on the left is people who come and worship at least once or twice a week at church. Over here on the right are the people who never do it. And this is the likelihood of an affair. All I can tell you is the more you go to church, the less likely there's going to be adultery in your marriage. Let me say it one more time. The more you go to church, the less likely there's going to be adultery in your marriage. And that matters because you are around God's word. You're being reminded of God's plan for you, for marriage, for relationships. You're also around other couples who are not perfect and they're not in perfect marriages, but they endure. So then that becomes the norm and that sets the example. Number two, after you put God first, know that home is where your spouse is. The Bible couldn't be more clear on this. It says this explains why a man leaves his father and mother. This is as God establishes marriage in the book of Genesis. Jesus affirms it in Matthew 19. Paul affirms it in Ephesians 5. You have to leave home so that you can make a new home with your spouse. You have to let go of the past. And if you're a parent of adult kids who are married, let them be. Cheer for them and support them and encourage them and be for them, but don't you dare get in between them. Don't you dare become a wedge who starts gossiping about the in-law, about the other one, about how, how disappointing they are, how terrible they are. Leave home. Your home now is the person you're married to. Your family of origin, still essential, really important. Go back two weeks to the sermon on honor your father and mother. Still applies. You still need that relationship. But the most important human relationship, if you're married in your life, is the one you have with your spouse, not the one you have with mommy or with daddy or with any brothers and sisters or your hometown or wherever you grew up. Break the cord. Move forward. Pour in. Give your best to the marriage. Make that your home. Number three, I love this one, continue to woo. Do you know what woo means? It's a really simple definition. It means you win the other person's love. You take actions and you say things and you exhibit behavior that wins the other person's love. Woo! How you doing, baby? <laughs> I'm telling you, she's going to love that later, I hope. Because <laughs> I know my wife and I know she kind of digs that. I don't know why. If she did that to me, I'd melt because I'm Scandinavian. But, but woo! That's not the only way you woo your spouse, by the way. Come on, men. Step it up a little bit. Women, too. You woo each other by meeting each other's emotional needs. I've preached on this multiple times. I'm just going to sum it up here. His Needs and Her Needs, a, a book by a great marriage counselor named Dr. Willard Harley, a New York Times bestseller. He noted, he surveyed tens of thousands of couples and realized almost always these lists don't intersect. The worst thing I could do for her is try to meet her needs by doing the things for her that I want her to do for me. 
Instead of sitting down with her like we did again last night after the sermon, saying, I think we should probably practice what I preach and check in again, because, you know, relationships change. Seasons of life change. So we asked each other again, what are your needs? How can I serve you in this marriage? Here's the goal every day you get up if you're married. Hopefully you think about your marriage pretty early on (laughs) in the process of waking up. Instead of asking, what can my spouse give to me? Ask the question, what can I give to her, to him? How can I serve? How can I woo? How can I meet emotional needs? In order to do that, your results will vary. This is not your list and your spouse's list. But you need to find out what's on that list. What are the things that you could do to pursue your spouse? Because that's when the two become one. Otherwise, marriage can quickly turn into a tug of war. Who's winning? Who's in charge? Who's got control? Who's got power? Who's the victor in all of our decisions? That's not God's plan for marriage. God's plan for marriage is this. How can I pursue you more? How can I woo you more? How can I meet your emotional needs more? This is marriage God's way. And finally, I've been waiting for this the whole sermon. Give your kids a break. And I mean this in two ways. Give them a break by giving them what they need more than anything else. And give them a break by not doting over every detail of their lives. That whole helicopter parent thing, not good for the kids. Let them breathe a little bit. Give them a break once in a while. But more than that, in your marriage, this is just researched over and over again. The best thing, what your kids really want from you as a parent, more than anything else, especially if they're young and at home, is to know that mom and dad are in love. To have the security that comes from knowing my parents love each other. My parents are committed to this marriage. My parents will endure. My parents do not have a perfect marriage, but they always hang in there. They always work it out. They always fall in love with each other again. They always woo each other. They always pursue each other. And when they do, it's a beautiful thing. Last clip, it's like 55 seconds long, but it makes the point. You'll hear the words, Cal and Emily are starting to reconcile. They're starting to get back together. They're starting to realize what they had and how valuable it was. And they're starting to reclaim their vows. And they're letting God change their hearts and transform them. They're rediscovering the joy of the marriage that they had once upon a time. And they're recommitting to it, to work at it. I don't want you just to hear their words, but look at their nonverbal. Look at the way they look at each other with such love. But even more than that, look at their son, Robbie, their junior high kid, Robbie, who sees them from a distance across the way. Look what it does to his heart. Give your kids a break. It's been a really hard year. How so? Yeah, there were a couple little parts, I guess. Oh, I, well, I guess I just, you know, really what I, what I want to say is that I'm, I'm so glad you bought me that ice cream. Me too. Go 
God's way. I'll turn it over to the campus pastors and leaders at our local sites for the Sacrament of Holy Communion. Here in West Des Moines, I invite the communion service to all come to their stations right now and get set up. Uh, this whole thing only takes a few minutes, and it's a good way to close the service. As we get in line for the bread and the wine of Jesus Christ, the body and blood of our Savior and Lord, not because we've earned it, but because we need it. Because Jesus makes it clear, we all have some confessing to do. We all have some growing to do. We all have some changes that need to be made in our lives. When it comes to all of these commandments, including this one, it's us, it's we, it's not them. It's all of us need this. And the night in which is betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, broke it, gave thanks, gave it for all to eat, saying, take and eat. This is my body given for you, for the forgiveness of sin. Do this to remember me. Again, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it for all to drink, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of all your sin. Do this in remembrance of me. Together, let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us our as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. We love you. God loves you even more. And the proof of, it, proof of that is here in this meal. Come and get it. Receive the bread. Uh, take that in and then take the little cup of red wine or white grape juice, whichever is better for you. If you uh, would prefer gluten-free, that's over by the big windows on either side. Go to those stations from wherever you're at. After you receive the communion, you can stay and sing and continue to worship. You can go. There'll be prayer people up here if you'd like some individual prayer after the service for joys or sorrows or anything in between. And come on back for uh, Sunday fun day at noon, too. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Come and eat. The table is set.